Well, you know, one of the things we find as a church, this very beginning, we're Horizon Community Church. Our, our goal was to be a group of friends who invite other people into friendship and to share the things that are important to us. And as we're sharing those friendships, just to really kind of connect with one another. And so we kind of tr- create different experiences, whether there's Bible studies or serving together or going down to City Gospel, just ways to kind of go shoulder to shoulder with common interests. And it's in those common interests we develop friendships. So I'd like you to hear uh, some friends who uh, met each other through our eco-project and how their friendship developed just through that interest of wanting to serve and be outside and be part of creating something at the Cincinnati Nature Center right here on our property. So here's a story of, uh, of Jack and Annette. Let's watch. So Annette and I met um, doing the Eco Team project at Horizon. I uh, started in November, and you came to a February workday group. And we've been together ever since. We have. <laughs> so one of the things that's really built our friendship and grown it stronger is that we both have two boys. Mine are 18 months apart. Hers are two years apart. Hers are a bit older than mine. So I've been able to go to Annette with different issues or things that are going on. And she's been able to reassure me and give me suggestions or ideas on certain difficulties that are going on with their ages. I I always tell Jackie that, um, you know, the Lord has his own timeline for everything, Mm -hmm. and um, (laughs) your children are sure that's the case. And part of it is, as a mother, you always want the best for them, and you want to do the best, so you end up worrying about it or being concerned about it. And um, Jackie is so um, devoted and dedicated to her family that, you know, if anything happens, she's kind of like, I want this to be good. And so I told her, like, you know, it was like a kind of with my children, it's a whack, whack-a-mole or whack-a-mole. When one of them pops your little head and you have to kind of tap them down and then the other one pops up. And usually it's just time and it's the God-given patience to wait it out and um, trust that it'll all be okay. And it, it typically has been. One of my biggest hurdles to doing something is the intimidation of, am I going to screw it up? Am I going to waste money or waste time? And so she's done certain things before that I haven't done, so I can ask her and I know it's going to work out. So it's really nice to have somebody that's gone before me in certain things and be able to encourage me and share their knowledge with me. But one of the things um, that was really so amazing is that within our similarities, there's some differences. Jackie is not afraid of any large equipment. Like she will run (laughs) a wood chipper and um, she will drive huge things with, you know, arms. (laughs) arms. <laughs> and I'll go, look at this woman. She's not afraid to drive anything or try anything. I think for me, um, what Jackie has brought up the best to me is that um, she is always so ready to jump into things. There's no fear in her. So whether it's driving the truck or um, giving an opinion, I myself am more likely now to say, oh, I'm going to jump in and, and do things like that. So it's been a, a good learning for me. And it's also really been nice because I, I felt many times throughout my life isolated because I was the only one I knew staying home with kids and the only one I knew doing this, that, or the other, doing the native plant thing, the edible plant thing. And Annette has done a lot of it and she's been doing it for longer than me. So I've been able to learn from her and also be like, I'm not the only one. It's okay. (laughs) That has been really nice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And there's a whole group um, on the eco team that we share that with. Yes. And it's, Mm -hmm. everyone has different knowledge. And so just build, we build mm-hmm. on each other. So friendships. And as we talked about last week, the reason we called this series Socialite is because for many of us, we're craving relationships. We're craving that kind of connection. 
And yet, we're often like trying to graze, uh, graze a snack bar for a good meal, which I've tried many times, by the way. It's pretty nice grazing a snack meal, but a snack bar for a good meal. But it's not that nourishing meal that satisfies our soul. And whether that's social light, like social media, interactions and clicks, but they don't fully satisfy. Or whether that's, uh, you know, interacting at a, like a socialite at a party. Kind of a lot of trivial conversations, which I love as well. When no one really gets to know you and you don't really get to know them. That socialite versus the lost art of friendship. There's many studies on this. Dr. Don, Dean Amish uh, cites the importance of relationship, friendship, and love in our life. He says, I am not aware of any other factor in medicine other than intimacy and love, not diet, not smoking, not exercise, not stress, not genetics, not drugs, not surgery, that has a greater impact on your quality of life, incidence of illness, and premature death in all causes. We are built for friendship. We are built for relationship. So what does it look like to be a friend and to find a friend that can both mirror and magnify joy? What does it look like for us to become the kind of friends and to find the kind of friends who can mirror and magnify joy? There's just something about having a friend that when you have something great happen, you tell your friend and the joy even doubles even more because you're sharing it with one another. There's something about carrying a burden and you share it with somebody and they mirror back to you that comfort. They mirror back to you that, man, if you're hurting, I'm hurting. And you have the joy of knowing you're not alone in it, knowing that someone cares that you're going through a tough time. There's also that aspect of friendship that when you have friends that can really mirror and magnify joy, you, you sit around and tell stories of the shared experiences, and as you're telling the stories, you're, you're building on each other's stories, kind of like you saw with their interview. Well, it's kind of like this, and that reminds me of that. And sometimes you're, you're going, that's not how I remember the story. Oh, yeah, well, don't forget this part. Reminds me of uh, Laurel and Hardy. So you may know Laurel and Hardy from their, their comedy acts, who's on first, what's on second, third base. Well, they were really strong friends on and off the air. And they worked together for years. Their families uh, enjoyed time with each other. They made a movie about them recently, and they tried to make it look like there was a lot of jealousy when, when one of them went out to do a solo project. But the truth is that wasn't the case. They, they cheered each other on when they had solo projects. But they kept coming back to working together because they so enjoyed their friendship. Well, one of the stories I heard them tell with their, with their agent was this kind of those funny things that happen when you're, when you're, when you're friends, and they're kind of that tell the story, build on the story. It was a story of a movie they were going to make in Hollywood, and they were looking for like a Hollywood bungalow they could shoot at. And they found the perfect bungalow, just had the right look and the right location, but just wasn't a, enough room in the living room or the kitchen for the cameras. So they said, let's, let's see if we can use this as the site. They found the guy who owned it worked at the studio, at the lot. And they said, hey, could we use your house? We're going to have to bulldoze about a third of it so we can expand it so we can put the cameras in there. But we're going to use it for about eight weeks, and then we'll give it back to you better than it was, and we'll pay you for that time. The guy's like, that sounds great. He gives them the keys. He is out for an eight-week vacation. So Lauren Hardy are telling the story. And they said, so we're getting ready for the big shoot. Send out the camera crews out there, and as they arrive at the front door, sure enough, the guy had given them the wrong key. And it doesn't fit the front door. And like, what are we going to do? The guy's out of the country. This is before cell phones. What are we going to do? Well, you know, we're going to bulldoze this section anyway of the house. That's fine. So they come through with the bulldozer, smash this thing in. They're taking off the living room, about to go through the, the kitchen, and they hear honk, 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 honk. And they come back out. <laughs> 
And this family pulls into the driveway. A husband, a wife, and the kids. What are you doing to our house? He had given them the right key. They went to 7991, not 7199, and they destroyed somebody's house. And Laurel and Hardy are telling this story. Again, of course, the studio had to repay him. But just that stuff that happens with friends when you're hanging out with one another over time. So how do we do that? What are the components? So I want to talk about those ideas of mirroring and magnifying. Let's start with magnifying. What does it look like to magnify joy? And there's a certain aspect of mixology. The power of mixology, you're mixing together certain components that make for a great friend. There's a guy, he gets famous in the Bible, but he, he kind of is a life changer, world changer named Paul. He once was named Saul. And he went through a very difficult time. When he's going through this difficult time, he had no friends. Everybody was questioning what he did and how he did it and where he did it and for good reason. And he had several folks who gave him a second chance, who listened to him, who gave him a chance that maybe he was trying to change, that maybe he had made some differences. And at great risk to themselves, they befriended him. And many of them befriended him for two or three years, helping him walk through the new process. He was so indebted to these friends that he began to go around the world and build little communities of friends. He eventually calls them churches, but they just mean ecclesia, which means a group of friends. And he so enjoyed introducing people to real friendship and a spiritual component to friendship that he talks about in a letter he writes. He says that the church is like, it's like a body. And when you become a friend and a friend of faith in Jesus, you're actually introduced as a part of the body. Meaning you've got a greater purpose even beyond your friendship. God has you in his, his community. And like a body, you might be an eyeball, I might be an ear, you might be a gallbladder, you know, I might be that little dangly thing in the back of the throat, but all of us have a purpose to play in our community. So Paul is now writing to a group of those friends, having just talked about that body metaphor, and here's what he says makes for the mixology of friendship that ends up magnifying joy and magnifying purpose in your life. Here's how he says it. He says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. And that word brotherly is where we get the idea of phileo love or Philadelphia, brotherly love. Here's what brotherly love looks like in community with one another. You be kindly affectionate to one another. Also, in honor, you give preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, but you're fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. There's even a greater purpose beyond just our friendship. We're trying to do something together. Rejoicing in hope. You're, you're happy, you're putting hope into other people, and you're patient in tribulation. Tough times going through. I'm patient in that. You're helping me be patient in that. Rejoicing with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind to one another. And we'll talk about mirroring in a second, but mirroring is that idea of I rejoice when you rejoice. Man, that sounds awesome. Tell me more. But I also weep when you weep. Oh, man, that sounds really hard. Well, that must have been a tough week. How are you feeling about that? That's that mirroring aspect we'll get to in a moment. But he begins by magnifying. And look at the four components he said you mix together for a friendship. And if you look at the Greek word he uses here, because he wrote in Greek, and kind of the idiom that it brings out, I put some definitions to kind of what this mixology he's talking about that brings together friendship. Number one, he talks about affectionateness. So what does it mean to be affectionate? Especially in the context of not romance, but in the context of phileo love. It's when you mix your mouth and your heart to say what you appreciate. 
Many of us would say, well, of course I appreciate my friend, or of course I appreciate my spouse, or of course I appreciate my kids, but it never makes it from our, our heart to our mouth. So people can't see your heart, they can only see and hear your mouth. And so some of you appreciate it, say, man, thanks so much for showing up. Hey, I appreciate that phone call. It meant a lot to me that you showed up. Hey, thanks for grabbing drinks with me. One of the things that makes friendship work is mixing your mouth and your heart to say to other people what you appreciate. Number two, he says to honor. And again, in the Greek, this means to lead the way by lending emotional support. I was talking to a guy yesterday, or last week rather, who said that they had a great friendship. He realized that they just kind of always talked about the weather and Bengals, which they loved. But he decided to intentionally start asking deeper questions. To say, you know what, what's really going on? And how can we really support each other? And the other person reciprocated and it deepened their relationship. But he decided to lead, lead the way in his friendship with another guy in our church by valuing the emotional support of sharing with one another and, another and celebrating one another. Then there's also this idea of diligence. Again, and the way it's used in Greek here is to, is to pour out your best without holding back. Man, I'm giving my best to this relationship. I'm giving my best to this friendship. You know what? I know I'm initiating for the fourth time and they didn't. Yeah, I'm going to give my best. I, I want to really prioritize this thing. And then lastly, to rejoice. And I always love the word rejoice. It's to rejoy yourself. That's why it magnifies joy when you have friends because you rejoy each other. Oh, really? And you retell that story or re-look re, re at that event or re-go to those routines or play golf again because you both loved it. You rejoy yourself. It's, it's building expectations of joy. We're going to enjoy our time together. You know, one of my favorite heroes is a guy named uh, Henry Cloud. He wrote a series of books on boundaries, which I'd read all of. And I heard him speak at a conference about three years ago. And he had this book coming out called The Power of Other. And I'd never met him before. And I happened to catch him right after a conference. I said, hey, I'd love to chat if you have a minute. So his handler came up to me, and he does lots of corporate consulting and you know, didn't have a lot of time. But his, his handler said, I get a five minutes. So he came and met me kind of in a private room, and I would just tell him how much I enjoyed and had learned from his books. And, and he said, uh, man, I'm enjoying this conversation. So he told his handler we could have an hour, and we just had the best time for about an hour talking about the power of relationships, the power of healthy relationships. And he had just written this book, so he actually gave me an advanced copy there uh, that weekend. And he tells a story here of his brother-in-law and how friends can bring out the best in one another. He said his friend was, his brother-in-law was being trained as a Navy SEAL in the BUD program. And one of his buddies, uh, I guess he had to protect his, his name, which he called him Bryce, that wasn't his real name. But Bryce was finishing up the BUD training for Navy SEALs. And it had been a rigorous week, incredibly difficult training, and he's on the last leg of the last test to get his Navy SEAL. And as uh, Henry Cloud's brother-in-law is watching, he'd already completed the training. He looked out and he saw his buddy Bryce. And he's still about 50, 100 yards out in the water. But literally, he's that close to being a Navy SEAL. And Bryce describes it as he made that last swim. He had dug down deep and dug down deep and dug down deep. He got to this last 100-yard swim, and he just hit the wall, the ice-cold Pacific Ocean. After all those weeks of rigorous, not only training, but trauma to your body, and he said, I dug down deep to finish that last 100 yards. I just couldn't do it. I just froze. And from across the 100, wa 100 yards of water, Henry Cloud's brother-in-law saw Bryce out in the water and realized he's in trouble. 
He's about to quit. He's this close to ending. He's about to quit. And he looked at me, caught his eye from that far away. He could see him. He puts his hand up in the air for his buddy to see. And he just says, go! And that simple act ricocheted across the ocean and across the water. And Bryce describes that when the voice of his friend came to him in the water, having dug down, there's nothing else, I can't keep doing it, suddenly like a resurrection of energy came into him, like a resource that wasn't there before, that someone believed in him and someone was cheering in him. And Bryce finished that training and made it, became a Navy SEAL. And he attributes that to the power of other people calling out our best in us. You got to hear that with uh, Jackie and Annette. You know, I didn't realize that there's some areas I could grow in courage until I saw how courageous you're being. I didn't realize there's a ways to navigate the wisdom of the challenges of kids and, and your worry about trying to make it all right. You called out my best wisdom. You called out my best courage. In fact, last week, uh, yesterday actually, the, the eco team was here and they were together, families coming together as individuals, and, and they were as, as friends, just packing acorns and getting prepared for the, for the next season. And it's just these opportunities to, to magnify joy with one another, to call out the best in one another. In fact, there are several studies that have been on this mixology. What are the things that really make for friendship? And it's the exact same things that Paul talked about here to his friends in Rome. A great friendship is composed of three parts. Number one, positivity. That's number one. It doesn't mean you can't be friends with sad people or melancholy people, but it means your interaction with that person is in general beneficial. You know, man, I like how they listen. Hey, we like grabbing coffee together. We like going for a walk. I, I, like, I like how when we, when we go play golf together. I like the stories we share about, you know, it's kind of lonely being a mom. There's a sense of positivity that I'm getting something out of the relationship. And we've all had people that we weren't friends with, at least not deep friends, because they weren't real positive. In college, Beth and I had a friend that we really wanted to be a better friend with, but she was just a continual Eeyore. I always said to Beth, I'm like, she can spend an hour with us, and it feels like a weekend. <laughs> now, it just it wasn't positive. And we were willing to be a friend, an acquaintance to her, but it wasn't going to go very far, because no matter how much comfort you put in, it was just a giant black hole. So positivity is one factor. The second, though, is, is consistency. Deepening friendships, as Paul talked about, it's that continual prioritizing. It's the consistency of having common stories and common experiences and common routines and, and, and jokes you look back on. And it's also the predictability of knowing that you're not walking on eggshells. You can predict how they're probably going to respond. You can know, hey, I, teased, I can tease this far but not this far. You, you get to know each other. But even beyond that, there's a third component, and that's vulnerability. And that is, besides just acquaintances, we move into deeper friendships that can really mix together and magnify relationship when people are willing to share what's really going on with them. So if you put the friendships in your life, you probably have a lot of dots on the graph there, right? Maybe some people who are being positive, some people are more consistent. But the people over time you've really gotten to know, there might only be one. But to have one, two, even three good friends is actually a pretty astronomical percentage for most people, especially in America. It's to say, you know what, I know what's really going on in your life, and you know what's really going on in my life, and we want to share that together. One of the things I do when I, when I meet folks is I try and, as quickly as possible, when it's appropriate, I try and share something that I'm 
wrestling with, something I'm excited about, something I have a dream with. I try and open my life as much as I can because I want you to know that I'm going to open my life and some people are like, whoa, that's, whoa, whoa, just talk about the Bengals. Um, other people will reciprocate. Man, it's kind of refreshing to know what's really going on in your life. And you got to kind of find out who really wants to have a little bit deeper relationship that way. I tell you, one person who knew that was a C.S. Lewis. He became friends with J.R. Tolkien. And J.R. Tolkien wrote the Lord of the Rings series. But they became friends, and Tolkien was a Christian, and C.S. Lewis was not. He was an atheist. And it was in the context of their friendship, they loved reading fairy tales, fantasy literature together, ancient ones, story of Greek gods, myths as they were called. And it was in the context of their shared love at Oxford as professors and teachers that they began to really enjoy each other's relationship, enjoy discussing the things they loved the best together, taking walks together with other friends. And it also, as friends do, you share what's important to you. And Tolkien began to share that he was a follower of Jesus, and he thought the evidence, as an Oxford-trained scholar, pointed to God being who he, is, who he says he is in the Bible and Jesus being God. Well, C.S. Lewis was perplexed by this. And of all the conversations they had over the years, one of the ones that really was pivotal was one walk around a lake. C.S. Lewis was asking Tolkien one more time about Jesus. And he said, well, we talk all the time about these, these stories that grab your attention. And you say all the time, it's those stories in literature like Dionysus, the Greek god, or for, in our culture, it would be Harry Potter. Well, how does a thing end? The hero gives his life, dies for other people, and then is risen from the dead out of that and, and, and defeats back death. Why are those kind of stories in every culture the ones that capture our attention? And C.S. Lewis, I don't know, but I get deeply moved by these stories. And Tolkien said, the story of Jesus is the true myth. It's all those stories point that we wish that was true, but in Jesus, it's the real story of God really doing it for us. And that friendship drove him through the evidence with his friends to really consider and become a follower of Jesus and then write the Chronicles of Narnia, kind of his version of what Tolkien was writing with the Lord of the Rings. And they magnified each other's joy by enjoying each other's presence. The second thing friends do is that friends have this ability to, to mirror each other. And mirroring is really the power of presence. I defined friendship last week as a person who shares a, a seat, shares a drink, shares a passion, shares a perspective, shares a burden, but just shares their life with you. And again, a good friend knows how to mirror. They know when you need you to, to step into joy with them, when you need encouragement. They know when you're down, not to suddenly kind of, you know, take you away from that unless you need it. They know how to mirror with you. And they know the power of just being there, the power of presence. There's a story in the Bible about a guy who goes through a very difficult time. His name is Job, and he has like a horrifically difficult day, like horrible and he's very, very successful. He's very, very wealthy. He has lots of great friends, has a great family, has a great faith. And unfortunately, in one day, he has this horrible things happen that destroy his, his farms as a, as a person in agriculture. And a great tragedy strikes, a lightning strike, and actually kills, a, a burns a building with many of his kids in it. And he's just devastated by the loss. And in that loss and in that moment, his friends hear about it. And his friends shine brilliantly. Let me show you what his friends do when they hear about their friend going through difficulty. So when Job's three friends heard all of his adversity had come upon him, 
Each one came from his own place. They lived a long ways away, apparently. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They made an appointment together. Let's come together. Let's, come, let's connect with him. Let's come and mourn with him, and let's comfort our friends. And look what they did there. Look, they, they prioritized what's going on in our friend's life. We're busy people. We got successful business. We got to be with our friend to comfort and mourn with him, to mirror back to him the grief he has. And they come and they find Job just collapsed on the ground, his head in his hands, just overwhelmed by bad news after bad news after bad news. And it says his friends sat down with him. Just the power of presence, we're here. We can't explain it, we don't have any answers, but we're here. It says they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. Well, that's prioritizing a friendship. And then it says, and no one spoke a word to him. Well, as a talker, that sounds like hell, is what that sounds like. But they knew this was the best thing to do when somebody's gone through this kind of tragedy is not to talk, not to say, oh, I remember the time I lost a kid. Oh, this reminds me of... No, that, that is not what you do. You just sit and mirror back. I'm, if you're hurting, I'm hurting. Because they could tell his grief was great. In Jewish communities today, they call this the sitting sevens or the sitting shiva. And they train people in the Jewish community that when someone loses a loved one, a mother a daughter, whatever, if someone loses a child, a grandmother, if anyone dies in a family, Jewish communities today practice sitting shiva. They come to your house for seven days, relatives and friends do. For seven days, they make meals for you for seven days. You have to think about meals. For seven days, they sit in the living room, and you're not alone for those seven days. They sit with you. They train generation after generation. Don't tell any stories about yourself. That's not how you mirror you ask them, what was your favorite memory? What do you miss the most? And they get you something to eat. You make it all about them. Sitting sevens. What's fascinating is how brilliant these friends are at mirroring to him. Their, their, their silence is brilliant. Their presence is perfect. And then they decide to open their mouth. And some of the most idiotic, emotionally uh, IQ low, emotional IQ low comments ever made in history are recorded from chapter 5 to chapter 35. Because they decide, okay, we, we, we've mirrored well, we, we've comforted well, now we want to help you explain why you've lost your kids and what God's, why God's caused it. And they begin to with all good intention, basically pour Christian karma on him and say, basically, the universe only punishes you for doing bad things, so your kids must have died because you did something bad. And a whole series of 30 chapters of this kind of inappropriate, emotionally disconnected, karma-driven nonsense. And as you're reading the book, you're getting angry on Job's, be Job's behalf. Come on! Why can't you just sit in your sevens? Keep your mouth shut. No, no, you don't know. No, that's not what happened. And you're like, Job needs a friend who will stand up for him and, 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 and tell his friends to, kind of, to, to shut their mouth and they're off base here. 
And we get to the end of the book, and that's exactly what happens. But the friend that shows up is God. And like every good friend that stands up for you and says, that's not right, don't treat him like that when you're a kid, or that's not right what they did you, and you know your friend's on your side, God shows up as that friend. Here's what it says. So it was the Lord, having watched them talk to him, had spoken these words to Job. Now he turns to Eliphaz, the the Temanite, and says, my wrath is, I'm ticked off at you. My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends. You have not spoken what is right against Job. No, it's not his fault. It's not something he did wrong. The only person who's talking sense here is Job. He's saying, I don't know why God's doing it, but I'm still going to trust him. I love the idea that God could be your defender. That God can, when when you're being mistreated, God's like, I'm going to speak up for you. And I'm going to talk in your behalf. And then God turns to the three friends. He's like, you know what? Friendship, we make mistakes. It's not like you're, you're done, but you gotta, you got to make this right. you got to go f- apologize to Job. <laughs> Here's what he says. Therefore, take yourself seven bulls and seven rams. Now, this is expensive. This is like giving up a factory. I mean, your, your, your rams and your, and your bulls, this is like where you're going to get more animals. This is where you're going to, uh, it's a producer. Seven of those things. And I want you to go back to Job, who you've been lecturing for the last 30 chapters. And I want you to offer yourself a burnt offering, a very expensive one, and say, man, I am so sorry. We are so wrong. Will you forgive us? And I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly. So Job's going to pray for you. If Job, the guy you've been lecturing (laughs) and talking down to, if he prays for you, I'll accept you. Because you have not spoken, he says it a second time, because you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. And I love this idea that God advocates and defends. And then God says, hey, friends, friends mess up, you know. I can't tell you how many times I have hurt people because I'm being overly sarcastic or not understanding just a sensitive issue and I've had to go apologize. God says friendships also can be restored. And so sure enough, sure enough, they, they take the advice. And here's what happens. It says, Elipaz and Zophar went and did as the Lord commanded him. The Lord had accepted Job. And what an amazing friend Job is. (laughs) He's already had this difficult time. Then 30 chapters are being lectured. And he still chooses to pray and forgive his friends. Because he knows, even though they said the wrong thing and did the wrong thing, they were really trying to help. He accepts their apology. And look at that last line there. And in the context of friendship, the Lord restored Job's losses when when he prayed for his friends. He didn't let bitterness and resentment. Our friendship is more important than this issue, this problem that happened. It's one of the unique perspectives Christians offer. I told you Christianity offers this idea that we're all part of the same body, but also that the book of Job points specifically to the ultimate friend, which is Jesus. And Jesus says that he will be your defender. That one day when all the things you've ever done wrong are are laid before the throne room of God, God will stand up and be your defender. Yep, that wasn't right and that wasn't right, but you know what? They apologized, they took the cost of that, and I covered it all. I prayed for them. I forgave them. God loves us enough to say, hey, that's not right what you said. Hey, come on, that's a bad decision. He loves you enough to say that, but he also loves you enough to forgive. He also says no matter what mistakes you've made, I can restore it. 
It's always amazing to see Jesus and his friends because he's always got this group of people who should never even like each other. <laughs> he's got one guy who's a zealot. He's an anti-government guy as one of his disciples. And Matthew, the tax collector who works for the government. And he, he makes them friends. He's got people who got real tempers. He calls them the sons of thunder, two of his disciples. And he got other that kind of meek and don't really talk a lot. And he takes this group of people and teaches them how to stand up for each other, how to forgive each other, and how to reconcile. It's beautiful. C.S. Lewis, writing in his book, The Four Loves, describes what friendship can be from a Christian perspective. He said, in friendship, we think we choose our peers. But in reality, a few years difference in birth dates, a few more miles between our homes, one university instead of another, the accident of a topic being raised, any of these chances might have kept us apart. Isn't that true? But for a Christian, a secret master of ceremonies has been at work. The friendship is not a reward for our discriminating and good taste and finding one another out. It is the instrument of which God reveals to each the beauties of others. That God designed us for friendship. And he puts around us in the interests we have people because he wants you to enjoy the gift of friendship he has. What does it look like for you to mirror and to magnify? You see, I've never been the friend I should be, ever. Try to. But God has always been the friend he promised to be to me. And I can go and take how God's befriended me, how he's forgiven me, how he's defended me, how he's restored me, and I can then go and say, I want to do the same thing for my friends. When my friends say something dumb or hurt my feelings, I say, you know what, I hurt God's feelings. And he still pursued me. I'm going to do the same. What does it look like for you to magnify the joy, positivity, that five-to-one ratio psychologists talk about of five positive ways you're investing versus one negative in marriages and relationships for friendship? What does it look like to prioritize some more consistency of time in the friends in your life? And probably not with a lot of people, but one or two people. What does it look like to have some vulnerability? Tell people what's really going on in your life. One thing that's been fun as a church is that as a church over the last 20 years, we've done it as friends. Came here for 20 years ago, and I remember we were putting services on and building this building or finding the property for this building. And, and even then, we brought groups of friends, like 30 at a time, out to four different properties to look at them and get our friends' feedback. We finally decided on this property, and we decided to have a big meeting out here, not by this lake. This lake we built, the other lake on the other side of the property. We put out this big dry erase board, and like 100 of us friends. What should the building look like and how should it function? And we had these post-it notes put all over the board. Friends designing a home for our friends and our friends to come. We got into this building and it was like, based on how many people we had coming at CCD, we're like, do you think we can fill one service? Oh, maybe. We'll make the room small enough that it'll work with a hundred. We filled one service and two, and as friends, it was like, man, this is so exciting to do something together, see people finding meaning and purpose and marriages restored and families and kids excited about faith. And we went to two services and three services. And it wasn't about numbers or growth. It was about so much fun to do it as friends. The joy got magnified. It was fun to mirror strategizing with one another and, and hoping and praying with one another. And I want that for you. So as a church, we just continue to try and find ways to help build friendships. I want to give you two as we uh, invite the band to come out for this last song. Number one, I was talking to a guy this last weekend who was part of our authentic manhood years ago. 
And he just said, man, I just met some people in the church. I, I've come to services, I've been enjoying it, but I got to meet a group of guys that I really enjoyed hanging out with. And I really learned some, some tools to make my marriage better and my life better. He said, yeah, I started coming five years ago. He told me last weekend and just how meaningful it was. So maybe if you just want to meet some people or just have a, a little bit more than just a Sunday morning experience, you might want to sign up for, for uh, Authentic Manhood if you're a man. Or maybe you love art. Maybe that's your common interest. A group of women are going to be going down to the Cincinnati Art Museum for these three dates and looking at some art, discussing art, you know, having a couple of drinks together, enjoying each other. Maybe that's the way you want to connect. We want to be a place that encourages and develops great friendships. Maybe you just want to pray and say, God, I need a friend like you. Thanks for uh, standing up for me when I needed it. Letting me know I wasn't crazy when I was being mistreated. But God, help me not to hold a grudge. Help me be willing to forgive because you are willing to forgive me at great cost to yourself. God, teach me how to prioritize the kind of friendships you have and that you offer for me. In Jesus' name, amen.